freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. What I'm going to do is kind of uh, tell, tell culminators who, again, you know, the one thing that is kind of interesting about my crowd is that they're not as cool as your crowd. Culminators. That's great. Yes. I see she gets it. So this is, this is the story. This is why this woman has to take any invitation to come on any podcast because she's on that list. I've been canceled gently. Pro Trump standups. Uh, you know, it's all the stuff you can expect in this article. You don't, you know, she's Chrissy, but just as we would expect, you started out being a normal person, being a, you know, a Democrat ding dong, like everybody else. And then you just started, what was the, what was the red pill for you, babe? Wait, did we start already? Yeah, this is it. We're getting right into it. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's recording. We could go, we can unwind the I'm, whole thing. I'm loving just, it. I'm loving yeah, no. this. Oh, this is kind of like how nice Joe stuff. Rogan starts. You sometimes People compare us all the time. You'll listen to an episode. You'll hear somebody go, are we recording? And then they'll just keep that in. But it's Joe Rogan. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Yes, well, um, Coleman can do what he wants to. I mean, he remember, yes. he makes a living from that. I, I don't make a penny from this. I'm just doing it for the love of it. I'm doing it for the SEO of it. But I do love it. Good. Tell yeah, me the story. Tell I me the was story. a regular person. Um, I didn't even know that I wanted to be a comedian for a while. Like I, I thought I wanted yeah. to be. Let's actually talk about that because okay. your, your stinky website, when you click on about, it, it talks bad? about all the shows you've been on. Okay. I, I want to hear that, you know, you grew up, uh, you know, in, in a, you know, in a, what is the, you know, in, in a, in a log cabin okay. you know, in Nebraska, Tell me, what's the story? Here? You want so, like the way back beginning. I want to understand you because you and I really hit it off on when I, when I did your show the other night. And I think we uh, we're going to be fast friends here, but we need to understand each other better. Um, OK, well, if I was if I would guess like how I got into comedy, I think uh, I grew up feeling like I, I just needed to uh, the best way to get attention and validation from my parents was through achievement. And I also, that's what actually drew me to sports. I was a division one springboard diver, um, all through college. I started when I was 11. I think that taught me discipline early on and kind of kept me from hanging out with the wrong kids at school and was always like a funny kid. Uh, I think because of our family dynamics, we were very passive aggressive to one another. We were, I don't know if it's a German thing. I don't know. That's usually just the aggressive. If it's a Long Island thing, but we just never, uh, you know, you watch your parents. They're your primary example of how to communicate. How, how many sibs? Uh, I'm the youngest of three. Youngest of three. Yeah, okay. Unremarkable size family. Okay. Unremarkable. <laughs> well, now I feel like now three is considered a lot because yes, people are just having true. one or none or we need to get true, those. True those babies up in this country. So, uh, yeah, it was, I, I guess I thought I was funny, but I also got the sense early on that my biggest value to the family was 
being funny, being able to perk people up when they were down. If there was a fight between my parents, I felt like I could, and almost it became my job to kind of like perk up my mother. So uh, were either of your parents funny? I mean, your father's German. So I, that seems like almost impossible. But. No, not funny at all. Uh, la- laughs at things sometimes, but my mom was hilarious. Like she, and also just the best audience. Um, and oh, really? That's and great. like a shit talker. It was mostly just like, you know, <laughs> all of us kind of ganging up on my dad, but then we would kind of gang up on one another. I think everybody in the family got it. So, every, but that, but that, that really is healthy though. Cause that means everyone can take it. Everyone can dish it out. Everyone can take it. Everyone understands that it's not personal. You don't even necessarily mean it. You have to know where to draw the line. Of course, you have to be respectful to your parents, but again, being growing up as a funny guy, my dad, I thought my dad was the funniest guy in the world. He was kind of, it was, it was really all dad humor, in fact, but that's why dads dads have that kind of humor is to amuse their young children. But he he did have a very good sense of humor. And uh, I also found as as you did, that it was a a great, a great way to, you know, if you can make people laugh, you can work your way through almost any social situation. Yes, definitely. But you were an athlete though. So you mean, for me, I would, to some extent, using humor as a way of apologizing to in other words fitting in despite being rather awkward and not athletic at all but that was that was not your situation you could you sprung off the board but it, you know being involved in sports didn't really make me popular, popular? Even, and, no. and i was like i was also a cheerleader that didn't really make me popular either like the cool the cool kids they did soccer and um like their parents had a lot of money and they would like buy lunch every day so i was like not part of that crew and a lot of them had cabanas at the beach at long beach so we were not part of that uh, was long beach your beach i didn't really have it i mean we would go occasionally to long beach but we were more pool rats like we would my mom would just drop of us off at the pool we lived well, right. there and that's Given what helped your- with the so diving was it, yeah. was it a public pool or was it a, a swim yes. club uh-huh. yeah grew up at um Oceanside pool. My sons all went to the yeshiva in Long Beach. You know, the big oh, yeshiva yes. in Long Beach. All four of them, they were okay. there for like six, seven years. So I know, the, I know the area a little bit. Um, I mean, because I grew up next to the beach and we Lucky. used to go to Brighton, Brighton Beach. Well, mm-hmm. it was so filthy in those days. This was before people, you know, like, this was before the, the can pop tops remained attached to the cans so the beach oh, was strewn with and it, it was so disgusting it was so disgusting i mean this we're talking about the late 60s early 70s they would just be just beginning to understand that we we very well could kill life on this planet if we don't start doing something different that's what i that's the new york that i grew up in okay that's so cool that's like that that was like the edgy and fun new york it was kind of edgy and fun in the sense that it was certainly less murderous than it than it is now but it was kind of filthy. I mean, when we moved, you know, I remember in the 70s, how scary Times Square was, how absolutely sleazy. It was like all porn theaters and peep shows. And now it's Disney, you know, now, I mean, now it's Ugh. all these, yeah, I know yeah. in a way it's, but, but if you ever want to get a sense of what that New York was like, watch a few episodes of Kojak. Okay. That was that was the New York that my family fled from to New Jersey in 1972. Okay, so you're growing up, you're the funny girl in a fairly funny family. 
kind of yeah kind of funny we're more passive aggressive and like shitting on each other yeah and so it's like i got very like a situation comedy basically yes sitting on the couch and insulting each other nonstop. it was good for us kids we had a lot of laughs but i feel like my parents were my dad was extremely resentful of my mother so i think it was not they were not also having healthy communication which i learned like yes it's good to make fun of each other and have have a great time but like you that also wasn't need the to channel be, they were going through you also need to work out your problems and like actually talk things out which they didn't really do they would like it was a lot of fighting separating and then making fun of each other so mm. but it helps it helps with a. so then the humor helps also because mm. it makes it lightens things up a little bit and you can kind of laugh yourself until you cry yourself to sleep yes and then i was funny in high school but like not yeah more just like making jokes to my friends not kind of to everybody would be like in the back of the class um just being like more goofy than like probably jokes which is more like a normal yeah. like just a normal girl with a good sense of humor yeah but i was not voted funniest i don't know what happened i don't know maybe i didn't bring my a game the week we were all voting oh, i think i was voted funniest that you mentioned that wow good for you i was most spirited so i got you know Oh, I got something. Okay, it's not for nothing. Yeah, all right. So there you are. So, so high school, you're not thinking you want to be a stand-up comic. You're thinking not you want to be at all. Not at all. I didn't. I wasn't thinking anything. I had like no guidance. I had oh, no that, adult. That's another thing that we have in yeah. common. I had no clue. I had no clue. That's why I ended up in law school. Yeah, that's a that's different story altogether. But I mean, I didn't know. My my parents didn't go to college. I, I like. High school was the end of the line. So the, the, like they kind of stopped having useful advice to give at that point. Yeah, my dad was, he went to college, I think for forestry, became, I think he wanted to be a park ranger, but ultimately became a landscaper. Why you be, forestry is equals park ranger. I, mean, I think that's it. I mean, right, you would think that. And then, but then he just became a landscaper. Oh, Mex uh, he's he Mexican. Was, I thought you was, said he was. He German. was actually among the last of the great white landscapers <laughs> of our time before the Mexicans came through. Yeah, and uh, which is cool. Like kept him really active, but then I think he got to his forties and he was like, "Oh fuck, uh, I can't do this the rest of my life." And then Everything he lucked hurts. out. Yeah, yeah bet, he lucked uh -huh. out and got um, a job with the Teamsters in New York City. So he'd be driving around the lighting oh. truck, the makeup truck, whatever, working like insane like 15 plus hour days away from the family which i think he liked um but just no, but, like it, but, but, it, but it was like with what was it productions uh, you know yes, showbiz yeah movies stuff? show yeah tv shows he worked on god he worked on the first season of sex in the city he worked on so many movies the good shepherd manchurian candidate i used to know a lot of them Okay. But yeah, which was cool for me because occasionally I would sure, go and exciting. visit him in the city. Oh, he would let you. Yeah, you could. Like that after was after whatever day job I had, I would go. You know, if he'd be like, "Oh, we're on set over you here." You mean after after high school or after college? After or? college, because so he got that teamster job. What well, I think while I was in high school or college, because it's just he couldn't. There's no way they could have afforded to send three kids to college on a like what you know as a landscaper, and my mom ended up she was like a secretary in um for like the music and performing arts department 
So, so you all right, but you yeah. so there's lots of showbiz vibes now starting to come into the story. Showbiz, yes, and I that's jazz why hand, I, jazz that's, hands. That's podcast, why right? I played um I played alto saxophone. Oh, okay. yeah, we all kind of played an instrument. Yeah. And your teeth don't look too messed up from it. No, right? Your okay. teeth get messed up from the sack. They can, they can, they can. Not- I guess I wasn't playing hard enough. Okay, fair enough. You know, it, would work, it worked for you, obviously. I had no, I, I've never heard that. Never heard that? Well, I, some people, yeah, because the reed, you know, is, is pressed up against your, your teeth. But maybe it's like kids during just a certain, my brother played sax. Uh, his band director, remember, we're talking about my brother graduated high school in 83. His band director was a youngish guy and he did a, a marching band arrangement of the Doors Touch Me. That's so cool. Now think of the think of the, the, the time signature on Touch Me and how that translates to a marching band. And my brother, my brother Glenn, played the sax solo from on top of the bandstand. He marched up during the dum 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 da 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 and then he gets up there. Yeah, that is so cool. cool. I would love to hear that. Well, we don't, you know, that was before the days of universal recording and videos and stuff. But, and plus, my brother was like, like he looked like Al Pacino already. Like, I mean, he he had no trouble. um, I bet he got a lot of chicks. Yeah. He he got a lot of interest, but he was, he wasn't, he wasn't quite as um, assertive and confident as I was. So I think he's just fine now. But that was, you know, in the 80s, no one was, right? Okay. Okay. So now you, okay. High school, you go to college where you study communication. Yeah, communications. Okay, so now you're now giving up any hope of doing anything normal whatsoever. You told me this, I think, when we spoke. Communications, right? But right, because my again, I had no like 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 you had no guidance. Um, my mom went to secretarial school, and she was like, she had a better sense of my personality. She knew I was like fun well she was a grown-up also her her best idea for me for a career was like oh Chrissy go to college maybe one day you could work at a hotel in the city that was her big dream for me to work at a hotel to be front desk somewhere yeah front desk uh uh-huh okay well that you know but if you're (laughs) so listen when I worked at Carvel I worked to work at a Carvel I like retail because you can schmooze and cut up with whoever comes in you know, so yeah. I, I actually, you know, so that your, your mother was thinking you have a bubbly, you might even say spirited personality. Very spirited. And I love to drink. So that works too. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So, you graduate um, college and then you were just kind of, kind of graduated. Trying to figure out yourself. Well, I, while I was in college, I thought I wanted to be a reporter. I figured I would move to Alaska and then work my way back to like a relevant, uh, what's it, not a network, but a, what do they call it? Like New York is considered the best market. I, I, yeah, major, market. major, yeah, yeah, yeah. Markets. yeah major, major market. Markets. And so, so I, you were, you were prepared to do a lot of sleeping around, in other words, in order to achieve that. Fully prepared. Yeah, that's everyone knows. Everyone knows. I'm, I'm just now. I did not know that at the time, but I'm but sure you know I would have gone you with it. You know that now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, so I interned at Dateline in New York City. I was able to commute from oh. the school I went from Fairfield. Uh, got college credit 
And then while I was there, I was like, oh, this is such a bore. This is this whole vibe is is horrible. <laughs> like, I don't want to be reporting on the news like this. Because is... in fact, these are not the funny people. These are the nerdy people. Dale. Yeah, and, not cool. Yeah. Yes, it was very cool to be at Rockefeller Center and like, you know, oh, I'm in the city. It was like very intimidating, but exciting at the same time. It's exciting to like buy a $15 salad every day for lunch. <laughs> um, but then I was like, I can't do this. And I I somehow was able to reach out. At the time, there was only one female writer on Conan. Her name was Allison Silverman. I somehow reached out to her. Wow. Was able to get I my, somehow reached which, out to her. Which, which I'm shocked because I just, I don't have, I don't typically have that much like, now I'm more of a go-getter, but especially, you know, when I was in college, I just had no clue. Like I, you know. But you did it. Something, I was not, something, something, something possessed lined up. you to, yeah. to, to be able to do it. And then got an internship at Conan for my senior year. Same thing, college credit. You, did you get to hang out? Did you get to like spend any time with Conan himself? I was mostly handing him his meals and coffee. There was one day where I got all three of his meals. That was a big day for me. But mostly just getting the writer's coffee. And like, it was considered a big deal if you were like ordering dinner. Um, <laughs> mostly retrieving Conan's cards from like whatever bar he left it at the night before cards uh like a credit card <laughs> i remember one time they sent me to go to esca to pick up his card esca and then he liked i liked i knew that he ordered he liked to order from city lobster i knew that he liked um bubble flavored bubble gum extra i know that he liked vanilla flavored stonyfield farms yogurt we had to have like all his favorites like on hand in case he blew through the office and what a what a very good object lesson in adulthood to, to learn about how people in show business have have to have this kind of yogurt and this kind mm -hmm. of bubblegum and you know in their 40s and conan's in his 40s by at this point i mean i know oh, he was right. i know he's always been young but I think yeah. he must have already been a, a fully, fully developed adult at that point. Yeah. Okay, and so not but, that much time spent hanging with no. Conan, not much at okay. all. Just like see him walk by and I just, just want like, to wow, ask, he's tall. Did you pick, oh, is, he, is he really tall? Wait, aren't you kind of short? Yeah. Five, okay. three. That's kind of short. So he, is, he seems like he's, a, he's an actually a funny guy. He is, but again, I spent like, but he was just really passing uh -huh. through. Um, mm -hmm. He was not hanging out with the production interns. We were mostly like hanging around well, the, the that's writers. His credit, you know, on yeah. one day, Dave, you know, got himself in a bit of trouble. Uh, <clears throat> as you know, Dave Letterman. Yeah, you know, did he yeah. like hook up with someone? He hooked up with someone. He, yeah, he, someone I who was not his wife. This. You know about that? You know, that's why he. That's that. why he's hiding behind his beard now. Oh snap! Okay. Okay, uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll pull that up for you while we okay. While we, okay, while we accelerate towards the how you became a comedian story, which I do think we need to hear. So, okay, so you, na you made this, this connection. That he hooked up with someone. Oh, probably. Gosh, where could you have been? Uh, <laughs> David Letterman. Fire David Letterman. It's like ethics of David Letterman's relationship with his wife his son lasco and letterman and oh. i'm assuming they weren't in an open relationship i think that his wife assumed that <laughs> okay so here's oh, snap 
2005. Stephanie Burkett, a woman who Letterman slept with while she was an intern on the show. I should have interned at Letterman. That was right around the time that I I could have slept with David Letterman. Wow. I got to tell you, like we're so we're going so off, so off. Uh, I, I don't really care. We'll talk we'll about free speech. We'll at come some back. Point. We'll come back. Uh, when I was in college, and like when David Letterman was first coming up, and when, and when I was in college, he seemed to be the absolutely funniest. I, it just was so yeah. amazing how funny he was. So um, like Gary Shandling, like just, wow, where do these guys come? Where so do these guys quick. come from? So good. And he became such, we have a, a, a Yiddish word that such became such a farbissener, such an embittered, you know, hyper-political. Like and, and of course, I guess when you've done something embarrassing like what he did, you become like really self-righteous and, and very moral, you know? Yeah, why cool. is that? It's always people with like, who's, who fucked up publicly or like have something to hide that love to tell you what to do. All right, so now you know. So now if nothing else, if we've accomplished nothing else, you now know the true story about, about David Letterman. Yeah. Who, who, but, but he really was a great pioneer. And it turns out that Conan was writing a lot of that right of his stuff. Oh, wow. So, okay, so now back to the back to the story. You made this connection. You got to the internship. I really you wanted bought the to, yogurt. I really bought all the yogurt, got everyone the coffees, um, was such a good coffee getter. Oh, my God. Like they would time me sometimes. No. Uh, and then I really wanted to be a PA. I guess the next step was like, oh, we. I really want to work for the Conan show. I really want to be a PA or whatever. Like, so you, the, you liked the scene. You like you loved li- it. You were, yeah, you were I, infatuated I was, immediately with the sh- yeah, show. Yeah, I was this. like, comedy people are my people. This makes sense. Like, this feels comfortable. Yeah. Remember, folks, put a pin in that. Put a pin in that because when the cancellation comes, we're gonna have, we're gonna see how how wh- why it hurts, why it hurts. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah, I, you know, it was very competitive, like even among the interns, I just I remember the feeling of like that we're not that we're at each other's throats, but like low key, we're, we're not trying to be total suck ups to these writers or to whoever the intern handler is, but like we're definitely trying to make a name for ourselves. And I remember I interned with this guy, Adam Yenser, who ended up getting hired at Conan and then he went on to work for Ellen, like long career working for different TV shows. Um, I also interned same intern class, Ellie Kemper, who went on to, she met her husband, her now husband. She went to Princeton. She, oh, really? Okay, cool. Quite Um, a few years after I did. She ended up meeting her husband the same year we were all interns together, Michael Coleman. They ultimately, you know, got married several years later, but it was cool to like, you know, see her in bridesmaids, see her in the office. I'm like, oh, wow, we interned, but she was older. Um, she was like maybe 26 or something when she got that internship and we were all like college seniors. So it was a little strange, but yeah. So after I graduated, I really, so I wasn't, I didn't get, you know, hired. I don't, I didn't even apply. I think I just didn't do a good, whatever. I didn't, I wasn't good enough to get hired at Conan or nobody plucked me up. And then I, uh, I applied twice to be an NBC page, which now looking back is like perhaps the lowest paid job you can get. It's like not even livable. And I was so darn qualified. I had given tours at my college for many years. I was like in student life, all that. 
um, and I had two internships at NBC. I'm like, how am I not being hired for this shitty low paying job of being Paige? Like I can wave, I can give tours, I can talk to people. So that didn't pan out. I had no clue what I wanted. Uh, My first job out of college, I was giving tours at Radio City Music Hall, (laughs) wearing a horrendous three piece polyester suit. I had to memorize many facts. I took one of those tours, but you don't probably sometime very close to 1970. So, okay. It was, it just missed me. Um, (laughs) And you learn interesting facts like the elephants in the shows. They couldn't get them to go in the elevators because the elephants knew that it was a false bottom and they didn't trust because they, they had to, they could, you couldn't push an elephant into an elevator. They had to take the stairs. And who among us hasn't tried at least several times? Right. In our own way. And they had to take the stairs. Yeah. They had to just like cram these elephants up the stairs or I don't know how it's wild to me. Uh, and then I learned about the rock cats. They're not all the same height. They put the tallest ones in the middle and then little by little, yes. they go shorter out to the sides. That's and I also learned I'm, I could not apply to be a rock cat because you have to be at least five, seven. So that was another blow. <laughs> and then, uh, God, I had about 15 jobs be- between graduating college and, uh, just this past December when I stopped <laughs> working at day jobs, everything from couple. And that's why your studio, I guess, looks like it's night, right? Um, no matter what time of day it looks yeah, I'm, like. I'm in Chrissy a basement. Is- yeah. I'm in a basement with lights on, but yeah, worked at God, a couple different ad agencies, worked at a hedge fund, worked at um, an all boys uh, prep school on the Upper East Side. Um, what were you doing at the prep school teaching? Admissions. Admissions? Yeah. Admissions for kindergarten, which was hi- incredibly high stakes. And you see wow. all these parents coming in. Like You're living, you're actually in the mouth of, of, I mean, that's one of the great cliches of our time is Upper East Side elite kindergartens with oh my Harvard, God, Harvard track kindergartens you don't understand like there were kids they would come in to their kindergarten interview it's like an evaluation you're it's basically like a woman with a clipboard writes down their every move and it's like they're just freaking kids you know uh and and people that work in admissions they take themselves so seriously uh and i'm you know mostly my job is to print name tags and um keep email lists together and just, you know, help organize like administrative stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Administrative stuff. But I got, I mean, it was so interesting to watch because, you know, there's, there's, um, children of UN ambassadors that are applying to come like kind of famous kids like Bridget Moynihan came in with her, with her kid that she had with Tom Brady. Um, I think the year before I started Baron Trump tried out to be in, in, the. At Browning, where I worked, I think he ultimately went to a different school. But every it's kind of exciting. Every now and then, you get like kind of a celebrity kid that comes in, and uh, one kid was dropped off by a nanny, so nervous, so nervous for this kindergarten evaluation that he throws up all over the lobby, while the other oh, kids are like, "What a sad story!" And it was so sad because He's I, kindergarten age, yep. and they're putting all that stress on him. Yes, how much I, I say to the evaluator, I go, "Is this going to affect his chances?" She's like, "Oh yeah, he's out." <laughs> that ruthless. is ruthless. So it is yeah, so course. sad. Oh my gosh. All right. So you have all these jobs uh, kind of uh, some more interesting than others. Title insurance. That's that was the least interesting. But that sounds the least interesting, but at least so far you're staying on the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Always in New York. I had all these different jobs in New York. None City. of this. 
none of this i'm gonna go to la and that's no god no no i would never i never wanted to be an actor right didn't want to be an actor and at what point did you okay so but at some point you start thinking about doing stand-up obviously yeah i did right so right out of college the the writers at Conan were saying, if you're interested in comedy, you should get into improv. So as soon as I graduated, you know, did day job and then started taking classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, um, did that. And also the Magna Theater. My improv training was about five years. I, I basically took all the classes and then would do a show or all, all the classes, did a team level one, two, three, all the way through six at both theaters, did so multiple it, teams. Is it, so is, yeah. is the reason to go to do improv, it almost sounds to me as if it's for networking. As it's for networking, but at the time, like, I really thought that I would be scooped up and get a commercial agent, that I would be doing Sonic commercials, that I would be, I really wanted to get into commercial. I even took like a commercial acting class because the track for so many improv g- kids was to like end up in commercials. Um, and then just, they would be doing improv, I guess, you know, weekends at whatever theater. Um, again, like no no goals. I just was like, Ooh, I want to be on TV. All right. But you know what? You're yeah. still in your, in your, in your early twenties. I mean, that, that's the time to like do that kind of thing. Yeah. You I know, mean, we're not living in an age of scarcity, you know, that by virtue of you're doing this, people are, are going to starve back home on the farm. You know, I mean, if you can afford it, you, you try stuff out. I mean, I, I regret that I felt so much pressure to be on a track mm. so quickly after college graduate, right into law school, you know, and boom, you know, so well, yeah, I was the opposite. I was on like, no, I was like on no track. I was trackless. Track, track, trackless. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. so trackless. And um, yeah, so I would, I only was able to afford these insane expensive improv classes because I was living at home till 26. So did five years of improv, did a one woman show. Then I was like starting to a little bit feel like an actor because you, you have all these, you have to do all these rehearsals. You have to get a director for your show. You have to memorize lines. And that was cool. And after I did that, I realized, uh, I realized did that, that. So what was the venue where you, uh, did it was at the Magna theater. It ran for six weeks. My one woman show was called hope. And I just did, it was about who, who backed it. I mean, that doesn't, you know, nobody cost money, doesn't it? I just, no, I just did, did it there. Rent, rent the theater or something. I mean, no, they just it, what, let me, um, what kind of space is it? It's um, it's a black people? box. It's a black uh-huh. box. Black box okay. Probably, God, yeah, maybe a hundred. Kind of small, but not cool, the shittiest okay. place I've been. And yeah, like you just you do one show, and if it does all right, they let you keep doing it. So I did it for six weeks there, and that was not pretty cool. Bad. I didn't have yeah. to like print it out or anything. Six weeks though, doing the same show, the same lines, the same. Because you know, I I used to I was an actor in college, and I remember if we were held over for a third weekend on something and it was like three shows a week, it was the Friday, you know, I think it was maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If we were, I, I hated life. I, I don't want to do this. I do the show an eighth time. No way, please. Uh, but I guess that's I, showbiz. I feel like I may have only done my show once a week. And then, cause they had so many other shows at this theater and I, okay. then I'd be like rehearsing the other days. And okay. the, the idea of stand-up always really intimidated me because while I was an intern at Conan, I um, was also interning with Liz Mealy, who had started stand-up at the age of 16. It was like a whiz kid. Wow. And that was really intimidating to me. Um, but after I did this one woman show, I was like, you know what? Like stand-up is very appealing to me. Plus improv is like not very autonomous. 
like is, if that's the right word like you have to it's rent a funny it. word to use for the word improvisation you have no autonomy in improv you have to rent you have to rent a coach you have to rent a room there's five to ten of you on a team so if, if a couple people don't show up it's like you're sitting around if you do a show and, and someone bombs it's like you're only as funny as your least funny person. Whereas with stand up, it's all on you. So the highs are much higher, but the lows are much lower because if you bomb, it's all on you. And you have to write material mm -hmm. anyway. Right, right. So then I just started doing stand up in, I think, 2010. I think it was March of 2010. And then then I was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is so scary. It feels like I'm flying off a cliff, but I just had to keep doing it. And I was on the track of um, you know, you do open mics and there'd be bringer shows, which that's, you know, they, and I really liked my bringer experience. A lot of people shit on it, but, um, it was at uh, New York comedy club. It was with the old ownership and this guy named Dale Sorensen and this woman named Michelle. I can't remember her last name. She died of rectal cancer, but, um, <laughs> there's something funny about that. This was, they had a great open mic that they put on and, <laughs> And they would do a, like a bringer show. So once a month, you try to bring whatever it is, five to eight people, and then they will tape your set. And then you can use that to submit yourself to other shows. But 2010 is, kind, 2010 is kind of the end of the arc of the, like the letter, I mean, the, uh, the Seinfeld era when everyone wanted to do, like every Jewish guy had a, a 15 minute set ready, ready regardless of what profession you were in. It was just like, was like <laughs> really, you know, no, but, but a lot of my friends and I talked about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was the beginning of the end of the late night boom, I think yeah, looking yeah. back. And there were a lot of comics who, who got stuck in the bottleneck because it used to be eighties, nineties, very early aughts. I think if you were a funny stand-up comic, like you could get scooped up into a sitcom, you know, if you got a letterman spot, like worlds would open up for you. Doors would open. You'd get, you get on shows. And then I think as YouTube crept in and social media crept in the establishment late night shows like lost meaning, basically that they, they weren't as career making as they used to be. So, so, it, so it really did lower a barrier to entry. You could, you could pre algorithm manipulation by YouTube. If you had the right stuff, you could develop your own audience. Yeah. And, and I wish I had merits. got into YouTube in 2010 oh my god that would have been the smartest decision and i remember i had people who were telling me you should start a vlog but i just i didn't know where to start and i had imposter syndrome so i didn't really get into youtube until really into it until 2020 so that's pretty recent yeah and you now have a whole you have a lot of subs 60 over over 60k you know, I mean, it's not pretty good. Yeah. You know, for, for, for two years, you know, and yeah, it's so then good. you're, so then you're in the biz, you're working your way up, you're paying your dues, you're doing the things you're, you know, you're starting, you're getting the gigs you're, and everything's going fine and you're not woke. You're not political person. You're just a normal person still. Mostly just making fun of myself. Uh, yeah. I that would, is I the would... co female comedian thing, right? Classic. To make fun of yourself Making and your dating guys. life. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Easy. Talk about what you know. <laughs> so yeah. And then I had a show, not that I was really not that political, but I was definitely default leftist, you know, Democrat registered. 
because everyone around you, like everyone knows what the jokes are to make. And you make George Bush jokes. Oh, yeah, he's so stupid. God, I mean, we're we were so even, smart. It was like after that time, right? Like, when did I start? It was, um, got Obama era. So he's so cool. Yeah, uh, everyone's you know, an SJW. Everyone's everyone's got gay friends. It's like, of course, of course, we support gay rights. Of course, we're all we. Nobody's more entertaining than a gay dude. How could we not be all about this? Absolutely, I had for six years. I had a show at the Stonewall Inn. Like, loved it. Had such a blast. Like, really, really, Stonewall. yeah, Stonewall it was Inn. awesome. I the show was um, put on. I think the New York Comedy Festival like two or three times. It was a great show because I would get up and coming. LGBT um, uh, comedians, like newer people, but then I would also get like seasoned veterans because we were close to the cellar, so I could just get a couple, like a you know one or two cellar comics and a night. It was a monthly show. Uh, so it was a great show, and it really taught me to be organized and how to produce a show and everything from social media marketing to selling tickets to realizing, oh yeah, it went from a free show to me being like, no, I want to pay these comics. Like, let's do it. So started the show at so in the red, like, you know, I would pay people out of my own pocket and then realize like, no, I, I should just like charge for people to come to this show. It's written up, you know, in timeout New York and all that stuff. So I learned a lot. And then finally I got, then my mom died in 2018. I needed something to kind of fill that void while I was grieving. And I was like, you know what, let me like get on podcasts. Let me make podcast appearances. Cause I had done them occasionally, but I was like, I made the concerted effort to like make that a priority. So in 2018, I started going on compound media, uh, just cause I had, you know, buddies who had shows there. And then in 2019 pitched my own show that got, um, you know, accepted. And then, so I've been there, but, but I noticed something interesting because compound media is known as the free speech network and people had a preconceived notion like, oh, this is super right wing because Anthony Cumia is, is more right wing and just people are dumb. And so and they wasn't just, Gavin McGinnis still there. He's yeah. He started out there. And, you know, if people don't know, like the real origin story about the proud boys is that it was started at compound media as like a social club is like a, as like a yeah. men's drinking club. Basically one of the booth boys ha needed trouble, like, had trouble getting laid. And Gavin was just like, are you jerking off? Okay. Stop that. Stop watching porn, uh, buy a leather jacket, you know, work out more, just like good life advice that you would get from like a big brother. And, um, and then at some point the proud boys began to, I guess, escort like the likes of Ann Coulter or whoever was doing a speaking engagement, they would escort them to their gig so they wouldn't get beat up. And then at some point, you know, the establishment thought that they should be the answer to Antifa and then started yep. really heavily targeting them. And yeah, no, I was there. all that. Yeah. <laughs> I came into the compound studios the first time I was on Gavin's show. Uh, or maybe the first, first couple of times I was on Gavin's show. I, so I came in there with Anthony Kumi. I mean, you know, he was the only one there, but so that's, so that's good now. Now our paths are beginning to, you know, um, to intersect. You're there and you're, you're doing, so you're doing podcasts as a guest. And then you say, I'm going to do my own, my own podcast now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I pitched them a sex dating relationship show. They had no entire, they had, you know, Joanna Sachinsky was a female host that hosted a morning with Bill Schultz. Now it's called back talk, but there was no show that was completely run by a female. So I was like, you know what? Let me appeal to the soft subjects here. Let's talk about sex, dating relationships. I'll have porn stars come in. It'll be like old school Howard Stern yes, comedians as well. 
You referred to that in a old school Howard Stern back before it became a drip. Back when it was fun. And uh, I was so thrilled that they picked it up and started doing that in 20, you know, summer of 2019. And, but I, you know, as I'm kind of making this transition, like, and then my, you know, I did kind of go from being more of a Democrat to realizing, oh, I'm actually like, I think more of a libertarian. And just through opening up my mind and reading more and watching more and growing up and just realizing like, you're not going to get everything for free. No one's going to show up and pay for your college. No one's going to like, no one's going to show up and pay for your insurance. Like, but also suck the, it up. Ce- yeah. the center line, the center line is moving. Yes further and further left like you thought you were like this middle of the classic liberal liberal yeah and now all of a sudden being a liberal means riots and because that's you know it's 2020 2021 right like all this stuff that is of course you're hanging around the compound media studios a little bit and you're soaking in a little bit of stuff coming in over the monitor getting red pilled yeah a little bit getting a little bit red pilled and uh 2020 was like a big year for red pilling just because like you got a lot of time on your hands and a lot of internet. So you're just like, wow, you're just learning a lot. And, uh, but it was, it was during that beginning compound media years, like 2018, 2019, I am, I have the same sense of humor. I am the same person. It's just that my mind is opening up some red pilling and politically I, I'm, maybe I'm a little bit shifting more libertarian. Uh, as, as soon as the kind of New York city, comedy scene got wind of me being on compound media and and then at the same time i had to let go of my stonewall show just because it was so much work and i was like all right i'm starting a weekly show i can't i can't do this monthly produced show anymore and that was a big part of my identity i remember it was so hard to let go of that show because i loved it um and but i noticed the comics that would be nice to me who would who were possibly kissing my ass for spots or who were just nice to me because they wanted to be on this show and then I get on compound. I noticed it's, there was such a big change into who wanted to associate with me and who was like, Oh, you're on compound now. Oh, I guess you're not an ally, you know? Uh, and, and these are people who've really thoroughly thought out their political views and their ideological. Who knows, right. And yeah, comics are idiots. Nobody knows. They're not, they don't know. No one knows what they're doing. So, and I remember there was a, a girl who came on like an SJW type comic who came on compound media, who ended up storming off the show because she was offended by a conversation about cultural appropriation of Halloween costumes or something, something insane. And then I went on like a couple days later to kind of uh, parody her, like kind of make fun of her, put on a wig and like just pretended to be really offended. And she was so upset by this. She started dragging my name through the mud, talking shit about me to, the whole New York city comedy industry. That was my first taste of like kind of cancellation. And especially from within it's like, Oh, this whole idea of a, of a comedy community doesn't exist. You have to, you have to have the right opinions. You have to be on the right side. Right. I mean, I, I have a, a friend who had uh, uh, Kristen Carney, you know, Kristen Carney mm-hmm. at all. Yes, I love her. This is what happened to her. But I mean, I think she took it a lot harder than you did. Um, They just people, you know, she would say, I've lost all my friends. I said, you haven't lost any friends at all. Those were obviously they weren't your friends. They they were just part of some pack. And you were you were part of the ornamentation of that pack. And the second you pause, you you pose any kind of threat to their common way of thinking, 
you got to go your, your history, you know, and, and she, she took I remember it really hard. It- I took it really hard too. I was like, I felt like I I lost so many girlfriends. Like, this was the pin. Remember, I said pin this point because mm-hmm. you think you're part of this. Cl- and what could be a cooler club? Because you're the club of all the people who make fun of everyone else. Yep. You're into like your whole idea is we know better, we're smarter, we're funnier, we're quicker, you and we're political. You know, our place. You know, we, we figured out stuff that uh, you know ambassadors and monarchs and heads of state are so stupid that they don't realize, but we as comedians get it. Okay. And then, and then all of a sudden, the second you start thinking about any of that stuff and expressing different thoughts about it, funny, like the whole truth, there's a bigger lie than the truth to power trope among the comedians. I mean, I mean, of course I mentioned to you on your show that I spoke to Josh Denny about this was on a couple of his shows and, I had him on my on mine once. I mean, it's you know, it's entirely about it about leeching on to the powerful, unless you're unless you're you know Gervais, who was just amazing what he gets to pull off. So amazing, Bill, Bill Maher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ricky Gervais has some balls like that. Like I give him a lot of credit so, for what he did yeah, there. It really is something else. So now, so I mean, so what I always ask Josh is you know what do you think is 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 there gonna be you know is there is there a community i mean in that article that i put up at the beginning said like you're on the list of pro-trump comedians you know you have tim young there are a handful of of other guys some lunatics also um is there kind of going to be two worlds of of comedy or do you even care anymore you're doing your thing you're doing chrissy's thing you have, have the podcast you have you know, you have your, you know, like, are you, are you doing any more stand? Yes, I am. Oh, yes. Be the at, stuff that was on the website. That's stand right. of New yeah. York on July 14th. I'll be headlining and then I'll be in Buffalo. Uh, that's Saturday, the 16th at Nickel City Cigars. Then I will be at the Syracuse Funny Bone Sunday, July 17th. That's my little kind of like New York and upstate New York run. Uh, and then I'll be in back in Texas in September, Philly. New Orleans, um, Orlando. So doing so, more headlining gigs and less, which, which, what I used to do pre my podcast life is just running around the city, doing a lot of free or $5 spots, like literally going broke, like running yourself ragged, burning the midnight oil for make it clear to everyone. So they didn't, you know, yeah, make, here we go. Okay. Here are the gigs. Well, this is a good if you have to go to upper upstate New York, way upstate New York, July is the time to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, as opposed to December or January or oh, right, snow. And then back and and then okay, so you know you're making you're so so being politically incorrect isn't stopping you from getting gigs. Are these are these brave clubs or people not know or people don't care or what's what do you think what's going on gosh i'm not sure you don't, you don't look you don't look all that canceled to me I, that's true i um i've never had a manager or an agent like i've had agents and agents and managers that like i've been in contact with been very friendly with but like really all these gigs it's like it's just like me and my boyfriend sending out emails you know like just being like here's my podcast reach. You know, I can probably bring in this many people. Um, 
let's get I, you know, I can show that I have this many fans in this area because you can break down your analytics on YouTube and social media and whatnot. So you can get a sense of what you can bring in. So you've lost friends. You're with a different crowd now, or you're not with a crowd. You're with you and your boyfriend and your friends, whatever the hell it is. Beyonce. And Beyonce. Fiance. Oh, your fiance. Yeah. Oh my God. He literally proposed on Saturday, Ron. Congratulations. I'm not wearing the ring because I just came back from the gym. Okay, but but hold on. Hold on. Do you have a date? No, because we literally just got engaged on Saturday. But you're thinking about spring of next year. Mm -hmm. So I because I tweeted something just to make it just to start up. If he's if if he's calling you his fiance for more than 18 months, he's not your fiance. Now, 18 months is probably a little bit short in today's world, but I would say two years. Then what is it? Then years. what are you? Then you're just living together. And whenever he, oh. and, if, and if he, and she, or she, but it, it's not fiance if you don't really have, if you have a four plan. kids, you have four kids, you know, uh, but he's still not married to you. You're not fiance. He, he has no intentions of ever marrying you. He, you know, right. he's still keeping all his, his options open. Maybe the state of New York might not agree with that in terms of the kids, but. So congratulations. It's very nice. A nice boy. Very nice. The nicest. Oh, yeah. That's so good. That's so- I didn't think I would feel any different, but I totally feel different. It's like lovely. It's like so happy. Like I feel like, oh my God, like things do, are happening. Do something radical. Start okay. a family. Very nice. Excellent. Good for you. I'm so glad to hear it. So you, yes, so, so you're not so you're not so canceled, right? I mean, you're making your own way. You're getting jobs in clubs. You're maybe not getting invited on to maybe festivals. The podcast. Dev- festivals. A lot of the comedy festivals are woke and, and kind of lefty, like the, the lefty woke mainstream comedy world is HBO comedy central right. Fallon Colbert, all the late nights basically. But then there's Gutfeld, which is, bigger than all of them which i got really? on uh really? like a month or so ago it's bigger than all of them yes gutfeld they get like two million viewers a night they're crushing is it is he yes funny? yeah gutfeld is hilarious it's like uh jimmy fela is on often and he's a stand-up he's on fox across america um so it's him gutfeld cat Timp is a regular oh. um and they've got like other you know random like newsy type journalists yes tim finally stopped following me I was just oh well because I she became this this never Trumper and oh, I think if I I, I think that. my feed finally became intolerable for her. Um, I I'm, I'm not I really not so how about, about roasts? Are, are you getting invited to do any any roast work? Yeah, I mean, when Christy roasting was very popular a few years ago, I think I did like eleven roasts. So I was there was a when the Comedy Central roast battle was trending like there were a lot of smaller roast battles at the stand there were tons of i i've done so many roasts and even so, for this event i did this past saturday at, at the beacon theater i was roasting the panelists you know i, I wrote roast jokes so so it's working for you this is working for you you're but able it is to but i had to go i had to quit the idea i had to really let go of the idea that i was going to get in with the mainstream comedy people you really have to let that go and i realized like it, it's all got to be kind of like built from the ground up you really have to build your own fan base it was going on other podcasts it was getting uh 
was getting invited to be part of Friday Night Tights, which is another huge uh, YouTube show on Fridays. Um, it's really just like finding your people and you have to stay true to your own voice so that you can find your people. If you are just saying what you think you need to say to get famous or to get booked, like you're not going to build a fan base. You're going to be a mouthpiece. Not only that, not only that, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to blow up because you're, you, the, the, the external pressing in and the internal, you're already a comedian. You're already someone who has something to say, who is a, an ideas person, maybe not a deep ideas person. You could be a really bad comedian, like some of the most popular ones in our country right now. Um, but you can't, it's, 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 intoler it's intolerable. And I've spoken to, to some people in, you know, in the, in this business who just, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I can't be woke. Maybe I have to be, um, maybe I have to go back. I said, first of all, you can't go back. You're never going to be trusted again. And second of all, you were so miserable. You were so miserable. You were faking it. It doesn't sound like you were ever really faking it though. It sounds like when you, right. when you began to see what you were seeing, you just started calling it like it is. It's like, as soon as I, I organically shifted, I was, I was like kind of default into the track. I was like an SJW, I was, I lived in Brooklyn and I hosted a show at a gay bar. Like I was the full thing, <laughs> hated men. I had everything. I had all, I had everything it took to be famous. Uh, but then when I just like dabbled in compound media, didn't change sense of humor, the same personality, the same love of gays, the same. But when I start going on compound media, oh, everyone starts to see you differently. Everyone puts you in this. And then like, of course, you know, then this chick comic tried to like cancel me and like ruin my name just because I made fun of her uh, on a show. And then of course, January 6th, like everything I do like, right, there, there are to all express these... myself, it's like, yeah. it's another chunk, another chunk, chunk. Uh, but along the way you're getting stronger and you're kind of owning it more and you're gaining confidence. And, um, and now you have a flag in your background, which and now of, that have... in and of itself yeah. would be astonishing. I mean, unheard of. <laughs> in the world of these, you know, these pukes. And, oh, a and, flag and is seen as a, a partisan object. Yeah. Partisan and triggering and mm -hmm. it makes people, it, it's almost violence. Yeah. But in fact, now that I, now, I can't, I can't take my eyes off it right now. I'm feeling, I'm feeling really, <laughs> I always my space sure is that, Like my candle isn't close to it. Yes. No, I'm, I, I have some concerns about that. You may want to just kind of spray some, you know, anti-inflammatory uh, and yeah. flammable. Chrissy Mayer fantastic story i you know take it and put this up on the website where it says about and now we have something about oh, not a okay. not about this take a look at your about page it sucks okay talk, i'll have to fix to, it or make maybe fiance boy can fix it he's so you know he's your right hand let him get get his ass you know out of bed is he even up yet what is no he, he works do? full time yeah. still yeah what does he do um he uh god do i want to out his job i don't know no no you, you, you come on Okay. You're a words person. But it's a, it's a, vague. You no, know, it's like a nine to five. It's a, it's a real person job, real person job in an office. Yeah. And then okay. he uh, on the side has another full-time job helping me with my podcast stuff and booking. So. All right, cool. Like, That's nice. Yeah. I'm sure that he will eventually be outed uh, officially and on his own time. Chrissy, thank you so much for coming on and talking oh, about this. And we did work. I, I think we made our way smoothly to my putative topic here uh, of, you know, of cancellation. You're, you're like one of the, I think the happy stories. I mean, yes, you're not going to get onto 
these, you know, took us kissing shows where everybody just nods their head and agrees. Yeah, you know, we're so, you know, we're, we're that Joe Biden too bad about his stutter that makes him fall down the stairs and fall off a bike, oh my you know, God. and, and, and yeah. the, just the utter the, the Kool-Aid drinking. Stay woke. Don't go and, broke. And embrace rejection. Like you have to embrace rejection so much where you're just like, you may nope. very well yeah. actually achieve true, true comic meaning comedy meeting. If you do, because if you don't, you won't. Thank you. Thanks for having let's, me. Ron. Let's talk again soon. Yes, definitely. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.